Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 126. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, TV production. Anthony Butler is the founder of Broken Robot Productions and is the head of live entertainment at Graham Norton's production company, So TV. He's also the former comedy booker and promoter at Off The Curb, where he booked their vast network of university gigs, as well as Live at the Apollo, and so much more this is going to be a big one this is full of advice like how to get on live at the apollo what tv production houses really do to scout how you start your own tv production company and why and when you should and so much more i think there's something in here for everyone so i really just want to dive straight in what i will say is if you can leave us a new review that'd be really appreciated five stars ideally but if not a four star review which reads like a five would be just as good and if you wanted to donate to keep this podcast going every little helps so if you could donate a pound either as a one-off donation via paypal or you could donate a a dollar every single episode i really want to push up the patrons i really want to get some more money to fund better shows and keep the quality going so if you can do that and you can help this community grow please do not hesitate to get involved if you're new here please don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you're old here please do consider to give us an honest ideally positive review in itunes and either way please do join the facebook group it's called rc industry podcast and it's on facebook obviously but for now this is anthony butler so I uh, first came up to the fringe in 2005 with uh, with Off the Curb, um, and it's been one of the, the sort of most consistent things that I've done, I guess. And so I did a number of years with them, and then when I started So Comedy with with So Television, founded their live department in 2012, it was the it was the first sort of proper live projects that, that we did. So it's it's always been quite an important part of what I've done, and it's kind of sort of grown. Sort of over the years that I've I've done it with for so initially and now now producing with so I think it's important in part because it's great fun to do and and it's 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 but I think more than that it's also it's often the starting point I think a lot of people see the fringe as being the end of a sort of cycle of, of, of work but it's not really it's it's the start of it I think it's where whether that's because you're going to go straight on and do a tour afterwards or whether it's at the start of a relationship with an artist that you're working with so from my point of view as a producer promoter that's kind of what the fringe is and of course that there are there are shows where they are one-off things they're things that only will work at the fringe and they're um you know, and, and those are, are things you want to do as well. So it can be 
it can be the event in itself but I think more often than not the fringe in one way or another is something that um, is a, a foundation for other work and other projects that you're going to do completely yeah I mean, when I first came up I saw it as okay I've, I've leveled up I've done you know I've done the year and now I have to start a new one and now I and now because I, I book a tour directly after and usually that sort of and also inviting industry to, to see me usually leads to more club work later on in the year especially sort of December January time when there's you know corporate things happening and I, and I find I find looking at it that way means that I actually have less time in a year to write a show because I'm because you know what I mean like you, you kind of it runs into itself they sort of cross over quite a lot and so how do you balance um, sort of looking at the year say bring up a show for, for an artist how do you balance uh, looking at this this show's project with maybe them saying but I also want to do a new one next year well, I think you have to look at the scheduling very carefully when it comes to something like that. Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of the time, if you are doing, I think it depends on the, how big the tour is going to be is, mm. is, a, is a big part of it. And also when you've decided, I'm definitely going to do a tour after Edinburgh, I think the reality is if you've decided you want to do a tour at the end of Edinburgh, you go, right, I'm, I'm now going to tour. That's not going to be until the spring. Mm. And you have to then weigh up very carefully as an artist with your other live work, other TV work, whatever else you're doing, whether you do have enough time to then write a brand new show mm. um, I think it's a lot easier actually if you've you know and, and I suppose if you're an artist of a certain profile and a certain level of experience then you probably can decide before you've before you've done before you've been to the fringe that you're definitely going to, to tour afterwards and that makes it a much more sort of simpler thing to do because you can then plan the year in advance so if mm -hmm. you want to sort of go on that cycle of Edinburgh tour Edinburgh tour yeah. which isn't right for everyone but yeah. for a lot of people that's what they want to do so it's all I think it all comes down to when when the decision's made and then you sort of have to work backwards from there yeah totally and, and I know you you were involved in the, the university tour circuit you were the booker for that oh well I was with the curb yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was wondering how, because obviously university has sort of exploded in the time that you were there, mm. and it was sort of, and also there was issues with, you know, fees and people being able to go and all that sort of stuff that came out of it, but essentially universities blew up and had lots more people going to them. And I wonder whether that helped with comedy, whether that meant the sort of, whether that meant the sort of people coming to it had changed, whether that meant the booking policy was different. I think what's what's really interesting in the, I don't know, 14 years or so that I've been doing it is is that whole, the, the circuit thing in general, not just the university circuit, mm. but the, but the the club circuit in, in, in general. I mean, when I was first doing the the clubs, which was, as I say, was around probably 2005 sort of onwards for, for three or four years, mm. there were, you know, there was a hundred, we were booking about 150, 160 shows Universities. a year, university oh, wow, shows yeah. a year. And then there were tons of club nights that we were booking as well. Mm. I think what you've seen happen, I mean, it's no secret that there are far fewer club gigs mm. um, around in general. I mean, I think the that, that particular circuit is still going strong, but it's it, there, there definitely are fewer gigs. So I think whilst the university thing is helpful in some ways i tell you what it is i think that and this I've, I've this is a theory i've got and i could be totally wrong with this theory <laughs> is that i think that the the younger audiences whilst they are happy to spend money on comedy they're less inclined to spend it on club nights i think they're more i think that you could have a a small tour which because they've seen someone on a podcast or heard someone on the podcast seen someone on youtube or they've perhaps seen them on a tv show but probably more likely the former that they will buy a ticket for a tour and that tour probably wouldn't have existed 10, 12 years ago mm -hmm. because the circuit was, was probably much in a healthier state. And I think it's just about where people spend their money and young people spend their money in particular. So I think, yes, the university circuit is really important, but I, I suspect it will evolve that the 
university tour circuit will become quite literally that an actual tour circuit rather than a club circuit because I just it's just it's you know as I say I've got no hard evidence to back this up but it's just a sort of hunch I get that the 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 younger crowds are more inclined to spend their 15 quid a month or whatever on a on a solo tour of someone they've seen through whatever you know platform they've seen them on rather than a uh, rather than a club night but I don't know what do you think I um, I was gonna say I was gonna say I think I think that's probably right for a section of stu- especially young people students and above because I think you get a different story from saying that you went to see someone's tour show versus you went to a clubbly club night I think I think the story of uh, I think I think real comedy nerds and I say that with all in all, all love and care because yeah. I am one of them um, would go to a comedy night and being able to go oh I went to the comedy store and I found this person I really like that person I didn't like that person like they'll like that story but I think there's a lot more people who maybe uh, spread out what they go and see so they'll go and see comedy once a month and you know music once a month or a festival or save up for a festival so they'll want the story of oh I picked to go and see this comedian and then if people haven't heard of it they get to go oh now I get to tell you about this one comedian that you know is my favourite or, or whatever it is do you, do you know what I mean like it's no I absolutely do I, I think that there's I think it comes from there being ways of building fan bases that there weren't yeah, your, your way of building a fan base was, or to, to, to build a yeah, build an audience really was to do to do the club circuit, mm. and then get on television as yeah. a result of doing the club circuit, yeah. and then start touring or yeah. having a really good Edinburgh and winning an award yeah. and start touring. And I just think that that's that is still a route, and I'm not saying that that route doesn't exist, but I think that is now one of a number of routes, and it's mm. not necessarily the the one where most people are getting a touring career. Mm. Yeah, directly from. Yeah, I think I think because it's one of those things where I think because so many people have seen that route happen for people, mm. and they've not seen it happen for many people. They've just seen it, you know, actively happen for maybe you know half a dozen acts. They think I'll follow that, and yeah. I think when every, when you know a few thousand people follow that route, it becomes a bit saturated, and you have to find other means. And thankfully now with the internet, you know, there are other means. So that you know, like Twitter or YouTube, as you mentioned, you know, I mean, how, how when you're scouting for acts, mm. how much of that takes into play do you do you are you active on social media are you looking for things like that um yeah i mean you you do i mean i i think with me when it's sort of scouting for acts it's a far more organic thing than that i don't sort of consciously go right i'm going you know because because i book for tv as well i think mm. a lot what a lot of tv bookers do is oh i'm on working on this show or i know i'm about to work on this show so i'll scout for acts mm. i think for me because I'm uh, because I'm sort of from that the live world sort of primarily it, it's it's a slightly more organic process because I am at those comedy clubs anyway and mm. I'm here for the month and at the fringe yeah. for the month every year and so I think that it is it's something that I just sort of do anyway it's mm-hmm. an, so I, I don't sort of actively go oh I must go to see you know 20 shows because one of them might be someone that I'd book I'm going to 20 shows because that's what I do you know yeah. just because of that's who I am it's, it's just the world I come from so I think it's um, but, but so much your question about the social media things yeah I think you do have to keep an eye on that I still think going to gigs is the way that I first and foremost would see certainly stand up talent yeah. but then you know comedy talent and people that tour are coming from different places now and there are yeah. people that are touring very successfully who are not principally live performers mm. so I think you have to be open to you know open to looking at those other platforms in order to, to see who's out there and, and see who can be 
touring and and, and and everything that goes with it. Completely. I think I think um, I was just chatting with uh, Jason from Avalon the other day, and, yeah. and we were talking about how there's a misconception when they make TV shows that they only book their own act. Mm. And I wondered if if you could either uh, disperse that rumor or confirm that rumor that, say, for example, an off the curb are working on a show, or when someone's booking it, whether they only book their own acts or whether they actually are looking for other things. No, I don't. I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true of any of the the big companies that do it. I mean, there's there's obvi- I think the problem you've got with if you're one of the big um, agencies that also has a TV division is that if you're making a TV show, a broadcaster is going to want certain names and certain you know types of names, and there's a high chance that you're going to represent some of them. But I think it's I think it's unfair to any of those those sort of big big agencies to say they only book their own talent on shows. I mean, it's, mm. it's just evidently not the case. I mean, yeah, if, you, yeah, yeah. if you look at, um, you know, if you look at Russell Howard's show, you look at Live at the Apollo, you look at any of those, they've, they've got a real mix of it. And of course, they, there are some of their clients on there. Naturally. But I would I would always argue that if that uh, show was being made by a completely different company, those clients probably would still be on there just by virtue of who they are and where they are in their careers. Mm. And it's, you know, I've, I've certainly never come across anyone having a booking policy of just keeping it internal. You, you couldn't book a series like it. So mm. I no, I don't think that's that's true at all. No, but, no, I, but I understand where those. I understand mm. why other people might feel that that's the mm. case, and it might, and might genuinely perceive that to be the case. Mm. But I, I don't think it is. No, I, I, yeah, I was going to ask if you could see why, from an outsider point of view, why some people personally, I, I, you know, if you just look at the names, you, yeah. it's very easy to Google and see if they're with you. Yeah, like it's really not that much research. You just no. have a, open in a tab and then you know just look for it yourself. But. I can understand why. I don't know. I, f- I feel like there's that sort of the, the quote unquote old boys club thing. I feel like there, c- there can be that perception where it's like, well, you've got your you've got your production house, you've got your thing, and you, you churn out trying to f- trying to boost the careers of your performance. And mm-hmm. to be honest with you, when you when people say it like that, I go, of course they do. Like you know, if they if they've got a performer, they want to to break or put forward of course if they've got a TV show and they can put them on they're going to do that it doesn't make any sense why they wouldn't and and it sort of brings me on to my next question about whether whether TV actually breaks acts anymore whether it's because um, TV viewing figures are down there's more opportunity to see things on on-demand players uh, Netflix are investing much more in the space podcasts are sort of growing and Spotify's yeah. trying to get into it Wh- where where do you see your role in the future and, and where do you see TV's role? I think TV's role is Different, different to what it was. Purely on the basis that TV, well, and radio, but but mm. TV in particular was the the sole means that you would become famous essentially mm. from, and that's not the case. Absolutely not the case anymore. I still think TV give, can give you a massive boost. Mm. You know, there's there's no doubt that if you've got. Um, you know, if you get books on those big comedy shows, then you are going to be reaching a bigger audience than you've reached by doing live. I think, I think it's, I think it's difficult because the the, the thing that you would use to sort of the, the given was that you get books on one of those big shows, you then become a successful touring mm-hmm. act, and that was kind of a given. And I think the difficult thing now is that you don't know whether that's going to happen or not. I think it mm-hmm. probably takes more TV appearances for you to have the impact that you would have had 15 years ago by having one of those TV appearances. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't. Th- what's, what's great about how things have evolved is that you don't necessarily have to have one of those TV appearances to get to that point of touring. Mm-hmm. You can kind of do it yourself a bit more. Mm-hmm. And so I think TV's role is still there and is still important and will still be the way that people be- can become, you know, a big touring act. But as I say, I think there's just multiple other ways that you can that you can do it. And if you look at the, you know, the success of some of the podcast I think that's the other interesting thing as well actually is you might have a world in which you might not be 
touring your stand-up but you might be touring your podcast mm. for example so it might be you've got, got a different route and, and on the back of touring that podcast very successfully then you do your stand-up on the back mm-hmm. of that so I think it's there's perhaps a, a bigger chain rather than just going I'm very funny I'll go on TV and then I'll be able to be a touring act but it does still exist I think my personal role I mean because I kind of have a foot in each each yeah. camp I guess is just sort of seeing how I think from a life point of view things don't change tremendously actually I think it's just how you how you find and build the talent you're working with that changes mm. I don't think the actual mechanics of touring changes massively as a result but it's just how you kind of go about finding the people to tour and, and what you tour and how you grow those tours Completely. especially if someone as, as any clients that I work with it's always with the aim of doing it with over a you know a, a long-term period mm-hmm. so you want to have a bit of a strategy in place I think the strategy might be slightly different but the actual um, mechanics of it um, day-to-day don't really change massively I don't think from a booking point of view yeah I guess it kind of does change a bit I think with with stuff I do in terms of broadcast stuff I do I think it there you know I have been involved in some podcasts which isn't something that when I started I thought I would be probably because they didn't exist when I started but the and and the the TV but the TV booking's still there you know it's it's still I think it is still an important thing but you just want there to be I mean it'd be nice if there were more platforms for it I mm. guess yeah I was wondering and this might be two different answers it might yeah. be your your personal answer and the professional answer yeah. if that makes sense but a lot of uh, people who have YouTube channels who maybe even remain, remain anonymous pirate TV show sets you know like stand up sets and put yeah. them online so that people who maybe maybe life is on the iPlayer and they can't be seen elsewhere in the world people are able to see them and the, there's obviously the advantages of like you know oh all of a sudden it goes viral in Japan and you yeah. know you could talk you know there's that searching for sugar man thing you know yeah. He's, he was nothing in America but amazing in another country so I suppose there's advantages there but there's a disadvantage in the sense that they are pirating your content and they are stealing you know potentially burning a comedian's set in a way that it wouldn't necessarily need to if it, it did, you know if it hadn't got as much pickup on TV so I wondered whether you see that as something that would be of interest to to your productions or productions you might work on in the future in other words taking something in and putting it out as the high quality like Monty Python have done you know where they've got right. their own YouTube channel now yeah. and they're putting out the high quality versions of se- of clips to try and become more relevant and get more sales or whether you think actually no I don't like it when people pirate the work that I put on TV on YouTube or whatever it is I mean I think there's a I think there's a big I think there's a big difference between pirating something which is an existing production, you know, mm-hmm. as in a film's production, and pirating something which it has been from a stand-up set. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it comes down to the, to a large extent, it comes down to the quantity of material that's used. I think that, I mean, obviously the the, the right answer is no, someone should not be pirating anyone's <laughs> material. And, and that said, I think that, as you say, there are people have benefited from it and I think if you are a um, an act who hasn't currently got a huge following and someone chooses to put you on that platform there are definitely benefits to that Mm -hmm. I mean I'm slightly skeptical as to how much the international thing works of course there are examples but I think those examples are few and far between Mm -hmm. so I think the argument of oh it's gone viral and it means you can go and tour in the states or whatever it might be I think that's always going to be very very unlikely to happen I think there's one in a million chance that you'll, mm-hmm. you'll get that from it I think what you are more likely to get from it is greater exposure in the territories that you're already you're already working mm. so I think it's I mean I don't I suppose by and large I don't think it's a a good thing to be <laughs> to be pirating people's material but I think there are probably examples in which it's in which it 
it can happen. I think that it, what would probably be better if some of those people that are doing those things were to try and build up a better relationship with the performers in the first place. So it isn't pirating it, but the outcome is the same. I, I guess that's not how they work. But you know what? You know what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it, it becomes. I think it, there is an avenue which can help, but it's probably not ideal if it, you're not consenting to it <laughs> in the yeah. first place. So, so you mean like if uh, I think Arsrap does the biggest one on YouTube that yeah. I know of that, that sort of pirates a lot of. I'm yeah. no affiliation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm just aware of it because you know it does a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you think that a channel like that should try and maybe contact agents or agencies and and basically say, look, we, we I mean, we've been doing this for years. It's getting loads of views. Would you like the exposure? Or how how would yeah, that? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, it's it's. I think we, when you're at the point of a, I think just building stronger relationships with the industry in general. I mean, I, I think that. I mean, the other thing with YouTube is you can always request things taken down. You do always always have that. So mm. if you're really if something's becoming big and you really don't want your content there, you can always take it down. Mm. I mean, the, the underlying rule is you shouldn't really be putting other people's content mm. up. I don't really fully understand why if you've got a massive following, loads of subscribers, you wouldn't want to why you wouldn't want to reach out to them. And I think in a lot of cases you probably get a fairly mm. positive response. I think where that sort of thing can go wrong is when you're just saying, oh, I've got this half hour set mm. from a preview that, <clears> that <throat> someone's sort of, yes, however they've got hold of it, and we're putting that up. And that's where things, uh, that's where it's not right, I think. I think if you're using a really short clip, then that probably is a of much bigger benefit. But of mm. course, if you're doing it without people's consent, yeah. then how do you know what they're happy with and what they're not? So I think it is, I think there's a, a big argument for channels like that building stronger relationships with industry and with the artists and with the agents to some extent as yeah, well. Totally. And as a promoter, that's sort of slightly sort of separate really from me because I, I get, <clears throat> I'll get supplied with that by the performers mm. that I work with. But it's, um, but no, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. But yeah, I think, I think that's probably the best way of, of it moving forward mm. and it being good for everyone because mm. it can be. Completely. And when, and when you are looking for an act or when you are booking an act for TV, mm. Do you basically say to them, hey, we're going to give you 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is, to yeah. do your comedy in front of an audience. We'll record it, edit it down. If you want to be involved, like, you know, do you involve them in the edit? Is it a case of you say, I've seen you do this set, I want that set, or do you just go, do whatever you want? It's, it's normally, it, it does vary, but normally it is, is a case of saying, well, look, we've seen you, this is the bit of the set that, that we would want. I mean, you're not too um, prescriptive about it. You're not literally saying, it's this joke followed by this joke yeah, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. this routine. But it is saying, look, this is the bit of the show or the bit of your, club set or, or whatever it might be that we feel will work mm. um, some of it just doesn't translate to TV some stuff works far better in a live environment than it does on, on, on telly and you know and vice versa so you do to, to some degree sort of curate the, the set but it's not it's not a case of you know micromanaging it no um, and it is always cut down so you, you will probably heavily advise as mm. to what, what you want that set to, to be made mm. up usually around 20 minutes and cut it down to about 10 8 mm. or 10 no I'm wondering I'm, I'm wondering how political correctness and social trends in in what is okay to say and what isn't okay to joke about has impacted what you're able to book or what people are able to say on TV? I think when it comes to, to that kind of thing, it, it's you're more likely, it's, I think performers have a certain style and a certain tone that they take. So it's I think it's very unlikely you're going to come into an instance where you say, well, we're going to book that person, but we want to censor this bit of your set or that bit of your set. I think that a, a show that you're booking is going to have 
have a certain tone you're going to be booking performers that match that sort of editorial brief mm. and as a result of that you're probably not going to have to have too much censorship over their set it, it's probably far more going to come down to what works creatively than you know the, the, than what works from from other you know from other points I don't think I don't think for the most part you you need to need to censor people of course there are there are limits on, on you know how much swearing you can have and, and that kind of thing but no for, in terms of the actual content and, and the themes of the stand-up I think that if if someone's got a certain theme that they run with and that's totally at odds with the show you're you're making then you're probably not going to book them for it mm-hmm. rather than book them for it and then basically try to change everything <laughs> that they do yeah so I don't I, I don't think for them I mean it has an impact perhaps on the who you're booking to some degree but once booked I don't think it influences how much you uh, you edit what they're saying on stage completely I mean and, and that sort of brings me on nicely to, to quotas and I think I think that has been a really interesting thing that's been implemented on the in- like self-regulated really within the industry I feel like they're doing it largely for for, for their own like within themselves they're not mm. really having Ofcom go you must have you know especially like with the BBC and the, the one woman on panel shows and the yeah. TV move recently where it's no uh, all male writers rooms I feel like journalists Journalism is slightly hurting those moves just because they're they're sort of for clickbait, sort of sensationalising what you know quotas and people are. Sorry, right. it's like day nine of the fringe, and I'm already losing my voice. No, that right. Uh, <clears throat> but I wonder, I wondered whether whether quotas have started to impact your work with So or with your with your production company, or whether it's or for the better or for worse, or, whether, or or how you're finding navigating that new area. Because I assume it's just a production brief that slightly changed rather than a. Um, I think when it comes to the, I mean, I, I think. I think the biggest problem with has been the press set, sort of drawing attention to what the industry was sort of doing rightly doing anyway. I think that the it's obviously I mean it's it's a it's not even a question of of course there should be <laughs> of course there should be equal number of women on panel shows and on stand up shows. Mm-hmm. It's a given. Um, I think where um, w- where what's been probably less than ideal is when you have sort of these sensational headlines um, about certain panel shows always having you know an equal number of female contributors or whatever it might be because I think it slightly undermines the sort of legitimate good booking of good female committees I think I don't think it is a case of quotas I think that it's a case of booking really good comedians yeah, yeah. and half of them being women. Mm. Um, I think that when um, when newspapers and the press start to make a huge deal about it and implying well, whatever whatever it is they're implying, mm. it, it does it does start to sort of undermine mm. undermine what's what's going on. Basically, yeah. I think that it's, it's it's it shouldn't be a case. It shouldn't be portrayed as oh well, there's a certain quota. It should just be portrayed as there are lots of very good comedians and they're, you know, some of them are men and some of them are women and the TV shows should reflect that. And I think when it's portrayed as being, oh, well, TV's doing this mm. to quota fill, that's actually a, a negative thing and, and, and a sort of slightly harmful thing and undermine mm. um, what what television is doing, which is actually probably just addressing something that should have been addressed you know, a long time ago. ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so I don't really see it as, as, a, as a quota filling thing. Mm. I think it's just 
sensible booking, <laughs> basically. I, th I think what annoys me about it is, and you hear it up here a lot, where you know if someone gets nominated, they go, "Oh, it's because they're a woman," for example. Right. Because and it's just and it's because they're they're either trying to validate why they didn't get nominated, for example, or whatever it is, uh, or they're trying to undermine someone else's hard work because they're like, "Oh, well, you know, there's quotas for that," or whatever it would be. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. No, that's that's exactly no, that's exactly what I mean. It's it's sort of, um, and, and I think that's. Of you're absolutely right, but I think when it comes to TV, that's that's heightened because mm. it's something the public are, are more aware of, mm. and, and the newspapers are more likely to report on. Um, so yeah, I, I I certainly never feel when I'm booking a TV show that um, I'm got to go. Oh well, I must make sure I've got you know this demographic or that demographic. Or no, no, no. Yeah. It's it's a case of um, just booking a show well and having good people on it. And actually, if you're doing that organically, mm. <laughs> you will have you know you should have a a, a, a good balance because the you know the whole argument of oh well there's you know there's not there are you know there aren't people that you can book um on on the shows it, it's it's just not it's just not true no completely and and the circuit uh i, I think the i think my my personal if i was you know gonna yeah know, sli slightly break from interview and be personal yeah. for a second my my personal outsider view of the tv industry is that it's slightly disconnected from the live circuit in general and i think that's a frustration that a lot of live acts have is that you know it's it seems it and, and I say this as a younger comedian you know yeah. in terms of like my career and in terms of my age you know I think it does look on the outside to favor younger comedians at the moment and and I think there's there's that there's that misconception of you know well a comedian's been going 40 years ideally should be put on things because they're probably better and right. so I don't I, I think that's also another issue that that I have to get over in my head because obviously like you said realistically it's just me making reasons for why I'm not on it probably you know it's it's just you know I, I don't know um, but but I don't I, I I think everyone's got their own reason for why they think they didn't get booked and for right. why that person did and I think when a journalist does, comes up with that reason it can be much more damaging than when two comedians go oh I didn't get it because they're booking you know, uh, comedians of colour this month or whatever it is. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, I mean, look, I mean, I think a performer is always going to sort of analyse why they're not booked for something. Mm. But I think more broadly, I think, think what? So I don't really know what the question is. <laughs> oh, well, I was, well I, was, I was only asking as to, uh, well, I, mean, I suppose the question there was wh where, where do you stand on listening to those sort of feedback loops of people from, at, from comics from comics but also um, and I suppose this builds off from there because we're going to get into social media yeah. in a sec uh, or back in social media do you search for the act's name after shows and do you take into account how positive or negatively they did from, from the general public yeah, I mean, you absolutely take you absolutely take on board how well they did in the room. Although you you know, I suppose you have to balance that with not every room is is mm. right. You yeah. know, I've seen brilliant sets get nothing and and die a death, and I've seen really mediocre sets, you know, storm it. And I think you have to always sort of take the balance of your own kind of opinion versus how something lands in the room versus kind of how they're doing more broadly you know if someone has got a yeah you know, I, mean, I, I always take the view that it's as a as a booker or as a, you know as a producer you you can't solely go oh well my taste is this and therefore i book this you can't book in that way what you have to be is very objective about it and say well 
you know, on balance, was that a good set or not? On balance, are they consistently, you know, storming rooms mm. on the on the circuit or, or or in Edinburgh? And I think if the answer to that to that is is yes, they are, then you then you book book them on that basis. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I do. I mean, I always whenever I see a show, I always sort of make a note of it. I've got an, a, a notebook that has pretty much got yeah. my sort of scribble down um, sort of thoughts and, and notes of, of, of anyone I ever see. Uh, so yeah, no, you, you do do those things. But um, yeah, I, I, I think you have to you have to be objective about it mm. because it's you you cannot book on just your personal taste. Completely, completely. And how how do you feel about laugh tracks? Um, I don't have an especially strong opinion to be okay. honest with you. In in terms in in television terms. Yeah, in television terms. Um, I think it's look. So I, I mean, I don't. I think people think that laugh tracks are, are used to a far greater extent than they actually are. I think that as well. Um, <laughs> I think. I mean, you're, you it's fairly obvious when they are as well. It's yeah. fairly obvious when they are, and, and it's not often used. I think when when laugh tracks are used, it's it's generally used as a, an editing device more than to make someone seem massively funnier than they actually were on the night. Mm. It's it's very rare, very rare at a TV recording. Mm-hmm. There's a diff- very different audience at a TV recording than you have in a live environment. Mm-hmm. TV record, you know, recording audience. Is do they kind of do tend to organically laugh more at things than, than a live crowd might? So I don't think I think there is a perception that TV manipulates things and makes makes people um, you know appear to have a far you know better show than they do. That mm. that doesn't really happen, to be honest with you. Mm. Of course, laugh tracks are used, but laugh laugh tracks are. are as I say, generally used as just a device to edit a show, and they're usually taken from. I mean, the canned laughter doesn't really exist. It's it's always used from the show that you're that you're working on. Um, mm. But it's it's not really. I, I don't think any show I've ever worked on has manipulated um, a set to the, to the extent that someone that died a death actually had an amazing, you know, mm. an amazing uh, an amazing show. Certainly not. I've been conscious of anyway. No, I, I, I think you're right about the first point in that. I think people think they just use a lot more than they are, and yeah. I, and I think that again just comes out of a lack of being involved in it, and also just um, maybe they've never. So like if I, you know, I record a lot of my sets just yeah. in clubs and things to watch them back and whatever, and uh, and I see a lot of people putting them on YouTube and stuff, and you think, you know, you can see that there's been no editing to the audio or to anything because they've just literally put the thing straight up online. Yeah, and you can kind of tell when people are. Uh, even even in Adobe Premiere, just just turning up the the sort of audience yeah, yeah, or whatever, yeah. it's really it's it's so obvious. But I think that's the, that's the difference between a you know a, something you're recording from a, a club set and putting on YouTube mm. on YouTube versus a TV recording. It's not it's not that um, I mean I think there's there is a huge difference between manipulating a, mm. a YouTube clip and having that really obvious thing where the laughter suddenly sounds a lot louder than you you are mm-hmm. on the mic or one is on the mic um, with, with TV that isn't really that, that doesn't really mm. happen so I think there is a I think there's a difference between the two but mm. yeah you're absolutely right I mean this this idea that on TV shows there's just this canned laughter just sort of whacked on every edit yeah. it's just it's just not true it's always yeah. you, you always have the laughter track from the actual show but of course the show is edited so mm. it's 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 cut to that extent mm. but but not to the extent that you're making a um, you know a, a, a not very good set um, sound like it's getting a huge laugh, and, and as a rule as well, TV shows won't have not very good yeah. sets because it's because of the way, because it is being edited for one, so you mm. keep in the funny stuff, yeah, um, and because it has been, I wouldn't say more carefully curated, but it's it's 
there's probably a, a greater amount of time goes into booking a TV show than yeah. when you book. And, and I'm talking to someone that books live gigs as well as yeah. TV shows. Um, it you. You know, you do spend longer looking at making sure that lineup is absolutely perfect on a TV show than, than with a live show, where it is. You know, it's one of a run of live shows, so it's, mm. it's a slightly different. Um, you know, it's just a slightly different way of going about booking it. Completely, and and that brings us on to So TV, yeah, and and your connection with them. So mm. maybe if you give like a potted history of when you worked with them and now where my you so work in them and now so. with them, yeah. Um, so yeah, I I joined So uh, in 2011, 2012, doing doing TV work with them, talent booking, mm. but also we set up a live division, So Comedy, mm. um, and then basically that's just sort of evolved over the years, um, and I've subsequently set up my own company broken robot and i now work uh, in partnership with so on on the live output so 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 comedy and broken robot basically effectively co-produce co-promote mm. um uh you know the shows that we bring up to edinburgh the mm-hmm. tours we take out on the road and so yeah it's it's kind of an extension of of the uh the the relationship that we've we've already always had yeah and in terms of your your relationship with the tv work then for yeah. example so if you if you're developing a new show, or, if, or even if you wanted to start developing a new show, yeah, how does that process work? Do you do you just go because obviously they're basically a production house, yeah. not a TV channel. So obviously yeah. uh, there's chicken and egg on. Is a TV channel looking for let's say a chat show? Yeah. If they are, let's develop one. Or do you just go? Actually, we've got a really good idea. Let's take it to everyone and see who's got space. How do oh, you work I, that? I think it's the former more than the latter okay. as, as a rule. I mean, I'm not talking exclusively for, for so here. Just in, no, in no. general, the, the, I think the way it works is there are there are not infinite number of um, slots available, mm. um, and you might have the best idea in the world, but if it's not going to fit the slot then you know there's a limit on what you can do with that you know there will be if a channel is look you, you generally know there are, and by slots i mean specific broadcast slots mm-hmm. as well as genres that they're looking for so you'll generally know what they're mm-hmm. you know what they're looking for and, and you you will work something up and pitch accordingly that doesn't mean that you can't ever have a really good idea and 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 try to make it work but that would be a slightly longer process than if they have a slot that needs filling. So if you've got a brilliant panel show, but they're looking for a chat show, that panel show may well um, ultimately end up on screen, but it's not going to happen purely from uh, just just going and pitching. If that's not what they're looking for, it might take a, be a, a longer process. I mean, TV is a very long process anyway, mm. but it, it is quicker if you're approaching it from a point of view of this is what the, 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 the channel are looking for, and this is you know. So, so we're going to come up with an idea that that sort of fits that. Brief to, to some extent I mean what again where I'm from the live world what I will often do if I've come up with an idea or if an artist I'm working with has come up with an idea um, and there isn't an immediate home for it or it just needs you know more developing and, and sort of proving itself is mm. that I might well say well let's do a live show with it and and, um, and and see how you know see how it lands there because that's a way of sort of proving how something works it's a way of working it up it's a way of ironing out the the flaws in it as they will have and then and, and I think that's a, a, a good a good route as well. But none of these routes are, are, are quick. I mean, TV no. is is slow, which is why it's nice to have <laughs> have live as well. Mm. But yeah, it, it's 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 it is as a rule of thumb, you're definitely looking at you're, you're definitely better placed sort of pitching um, for a slot that's available than just going, hey, I've got this great idea. Time for the mid pod break. I'm loving hearing how uni gigs work. I am really enjoying how TV shows are put together and how they are related and collaborate with the Edinburgh Fringe, both in terms of scouting for ideas and people to put in shows. 
Coming up next is a mid-roll ad. If you don't want to hear it, you can just drown it out by giving us a review on iTunes. Five stars ideally, or a four-star review that reads like a five-star. That would be fine. Uh, if you'd like ad-free versions of the podcast, you can become a patron from $1 an episode. If you think this is worth ATP, there's a link in the show notes, and you can get rid of these adverts. Here it comes. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we're back. Before we jump back into the episode, I just wanted to thank you all for your ongoing support in the show and for the questions submitted through Facebook. If you look at the link in the show notes, I would highly recommend joining the Facebook group as you can get your questions asked to the experts through me. We've got some amazingly exciting guests coming on. If you check the group, you'll see which ones have been announced. Let's jump back into the pod. Completely. And as for, I mean, obviously there's the cliche of if you're famous, they can, you know, it's easier to get a show made or it's easier to to get a show taken seriously by a channel because if you have a name attached to something, they Mm. know that a certain number of people will definitely view it. But I wondered whether there's other criteria these days just because of, you know, people building up a following online. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not. I mean, there definitely was a world in which you went, you know, X wants to do a TV show Mm. and they go, great, right. What's the sh- yeah. you've got the start? What's the show? Yeah. I don't think that's. I'm, I'm sure there are examples of that now, but 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 increasingly rare. I think you, the the marriage of the format and the um you know the principal artist attached are equally crucial. So I don't I don't think I think the days of saying oh well um you know so and so is really big. So what do they want to do? Is it a panel show? Is it a TV show? I don't think that is as commonplace as it perhaps was and I think the, the format becomes you know, far more important I think the channels as well have got a very specific idea of what they want in terms of, of genre I think that one you know if 
that said, I think certainly having a big name attached is going to always mm. be beneficial. Or having a big name's not even the right to, having the right name attached because it depends what demographic you're trying to hit. Mm. And if you're trying to hit, um, you know, a younger audience, that might not be the sort of arena filling big names. It might be, yeah, but yeah. it might not be. It might be someone that has got a really cool podcast or uh, you know that's that's topping the charts, or it might be someone that's got a huge YouTube following. Mm. So it's it's. I think the, having the right name, a name that's going to hit the right audience, I think demographics play a bigger role than they perhaps used to. It, it would have been, well, we've got, you know, it's mainstream channel, big name, everyone will watch. And I think now it's far more, well, you know, for this, we're really targeting 16 to 24 year olds. So you're not necessarily going to go for your sort of arena headlining comedian. You mm. you might, but you might equally be going for a YouTuber or a, um, a you know, a, a podcast host who to a bigger uh, proportion of the public isn't especially known, but to the, the, the audience you're targeting is massively you know, well known, and the the person they're far more likely to tune in on. So mm. I think that's quite a big change that's happened in the, sort of the time I've been been doing it. Yeah, no, c- complete, uh, and <clears throat> and it completely makes sense because, you know, like, like we were talking about briefly before, you know, Netflix is now in the market. Um, Disney Plus are about to launch like a whole new their version of that. You know, there, there's so many places and so many behind the wall places that you can watch content. Yeah, that you only have 24 hours in a day. Yeah, and and now with YouTube as well, you know, I think I think they said something like 38 hours every minute is uploaded to YouTube. Yeah, yeah, and so it's, you're it's, like, it's crazy. Stuff. I can't watch it all. You know, no, it's, no. it's just physically impossible. So so to core a specific de- uh, a demographic yeah. it, it, it makes sense why it would be their raison d'etre rather yeah, than yeah. it being like we have a famous person who needs a vehicle yeah. let's put them on there yeah. and I suppose uh, well, I mean what, what are your thoughts on Netflix and on demand players and, and do you do you ever uh, work well I mean I was trying to look into it I mean obviously there's stuff that gets syndicated onto those channels yeah. and stuff but have you ever worked on a Netflix original are you no I haven't actually no, no I, 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 I haven't worked on any of those um, I, I think that the I mean in a sense I, th- I mean I think Netflix is is a good thing. I think Netflix is just sort of the obvious way that TV's kind of evolving. Right. Not just Netflix, any of the the broadcasters on demand services as well. Is the I mean, how often do you watch something live? I very rarely watch anything live. Mm. Um, I don't think that means that there's not a place for the original broadcasters. I think they'll continue to be strong, but I think it will evolve more towards the the on demand route i mean i suppose the interesting thing about that is if you are the difficulty when you i suppose when you're targeting a specific audience which on on an on-demand service you can do more is that the the budgets of those things are tricky and without being too boring talking about budgets if you've got something which is going to be viewed by 10 million people on primetime bbc one then it is a lot easier to spend more money on it than Mm -hmm. if you are doing something which is going to be on Netflix obviously have big budgets but mm. on an on-demand service which is going to be viewed by exactly the audience you want to reach mm-hmm. but there aren't going to be as many of them yeah. so there's there's that impact but I think it's you know whether it's a whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing it is definitely the way it's going I mean there's no there's no question that on-demand is the way that I would hazard a guess the majority of people under 40 watch watch content and probably a substantial amount of people that are over 40 as well but it's certainly younger people are, are, are viewing TV in that way so that means as we progress over the next 10 20 years i'd imagine that's going to become more and more just the 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 norm and the way of doing it i don't know how that will i mean netflix as well obviously the interesting thing is that it's it's international Mm. so you get your netflix special on um 
or, you, know, you, you get your stand-up special on Netflix, then you are quite possibly going to be broadcast in far more hmm. regions than if you were doing a spot on a, a traditional broadcaster. The other thing as well is, is with a traditional broadcaster, you're less likely to get a stand-up special just because they don't tend to commission them so much. They might broadcast your DVD, but they're not going to commission an original stand-up special as a rule yeah there, um, there's less production cost in just taking a dvd and putting it on there yeah than, yeah than them actually making a whole new one whereas yeah. netflix kind of had the infrastructure to do that yeah and i think yeah. because they have the international market as yeah. well that you sort of you know for for however much they're spending and perhaps not recouping on someone that's that's sort of domestic over here mm-hmm. um you you might you're probably making that back sort of tenfold on a u.s name but the it, it's sort of cumulative because you have this international mm. platform um, but it's definitely, I mean, I, I think that's a good thing for the stand-ups. Mm. I, I, it's, I don't know how that will, will sort of pan out longer term mm. in terms of the traditional broadcasters. But I think they have a slightly different remit anyway. I think Netflix have a slightly different thing that they're trying to do. But on-demand is definitely how it's going to end up being. Yeah. I don't think anyone's suggesting otherwise, really. No, no. I mean, my, my only personal frustration with on-demand was uh, when something moved from TV to, say, my phone, when I want to watch it yeah. on my phone. I, I, none of the content changed. And, and because I'm watching it at a different time, I'm, I'm physically close to the screen. I'm kind of, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it in a whole different way. And, and I suppose... Slight elements of those have changed recently, you know, where where it's kind of because I feel like some shows are more aware that people are maybe even not looking at it. They're just sort of, you know, they've got it next to them or or they're listening to it like a podcast and just hearing the words and things. And I feel like a lot of shows are kind of adapting to that. But I remember very early days of sort of iPlayer stuff and whatever. It would just be we're putting it up on there for 30 days in case you've missed it sort of thing. Yeah. And I wondered whether you you have seen a trend in that in the numbers you're looking at when you're when you're looking at where people are watching stuff. Yeah. And also whether that's impacting how you're making the show you know like your sec- the second screen you know people looking at their phone instead of the screen how are you are you trying to get hashtags moving are you trying to get conversations happening during shows what's um i think i think that i think there's there's sort of almost two different parts to that i think yeah. certainly you're trying to get the uh, i think increasingly with tv you're trying to get the hashtags and things going mm. yeah, that that's that's sort of without question the social media in that sense is i think increasingly important mm. i don't know how much when you're making a TV show, you're thinking, oh, and someone might watch this on, on their phone. Yeah. I, d- I don't know how much you're thinking that, if I'm being honest. I, but I do think certainly you are thinking about how, you are thinking about the on-demand aspect, but not so much the, the actual physical sort of, you know, mm. thing that they're going to be watching it on. Mm. Um, I think what you're thinking about is the, you know, how it will trend on Twitter, how it will, you know, what people will be posting on Instagram about it, um, and how that might then impact on your on-demand numbers. Um, I don't think you're so much thinking about, well, but hang on, is someone going to be watching this on their way to work on mm. their phone? It, I'm sure some people are thinking about mm. that. It's not something I've ever <laughs> especially yeah. thought about, to be honest. But I think you are, I think you do think about the, the, the way it's, um, Perceived from a you know from a social mm. media point of view, um, again far more than you used to because it just wasn't it just didn't matter so much yeah. you know it was it was a sort of oh well there's social media things there but whatever and now it's it's sort of you know can, you can't make or break your show but it's, it can it can have an impact a, a substantial impact on how many people watch across the month that follows completely completely and 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 just moving into chat shows briefly so mm. chat shows are increasingly fronted by very famous so like James Corden in America and yeah. Obviously, Graham Norton's a big yeah. one that you would work with. Mm. What are your thoughts on chat shows in terms of comedians uh, on them? I mean, obviously, they don't tend to do stand-up sets, but increasingly, what I've because when I when I was watching chat shows as you know coming you know as a, as a kid or whatever, yeah. I would largely associate them with literally just 
chatting to someone yeah. whereas they've started to have sort of sketches in them they've started to have like little like sort of in you know with the chair and stuff um, there's, there's sort of been moments in it that have um, started to come into it that, that have adapted them into a different format that have sort of included the audience a bit more I think I mean I, I think that that's just I think that's come about through purely who fronts chat shows I think that mm. the comedy entertainment chat shows as opposed to out and out sort of entertainment chat shows or light entertainment chat shows as they would have called them um, mm. have, have just kind of evolved do you know what I mean I don't think there's ever been a conscious decision I mean each show had makes conscious decisions yeah, about yeah. their content obviously but I don't think there's ever been a conscious decision to say oh well from here on in there's going to be loads more chat shows in general are going to have you know all these sort of different items in them I think it's come about from who the um, chat show hosts have been so when it stops being Michael Parkinson starts being Jonathan or Graham or James Corden or whoever then it's going to the tone is going to change and as a result of that the items are going to change I don't, I don't think in terms of having comedians on as guests I don't think that's really changed that much at all from the sort of more traditional formats to the, to the current formats mm. but in terms of the nature of what the show is yeah they are they are more comedy entertainment than they are sort of serious sit down chat in the sort of Parkinson style but I think that that's yeah I think that's just I think that's evolved just purely based on who the who the hosts are and who the hosts tend to be of mm. of chat shows these days it, moving into Broken Robot and your, your production company yeah. how how does that fit into the year as it were of like you know going around Edinburgh and going around TV channels and things and how does that fit into the larger space of, of your work with so um, well I, mean, I always think of my year as being a bit like the academic year in a yeah, way because so you sort of have, ed <laughs> you have Edinburgh yeah. and then you have the, the sort of yeah. the sort of awesome term and spring mm -hmm. summer term so you, you I mean that's sort of the, the the way that my year always shapes up is that mm. you have Edinburgh you have your autumn tours you have your typically spring tours and then you have the sort of back onto the, the, the sort of the run of the build up mm. to Edinburgh again in terms of how TV fits around that I mean it, it all very much depends on, on personally for me on, on what I've got what I've got mm. on if, if I've got a period where I've got you know seven tours out then I'm probably not going to do a huge amount of TV during that time if I've got you know less out on the road or it's a gap between tours or whatever that's where I'll probably take on more more television work personally I mean that and some of that might be with so some of that will be with with other people in, in terms of how it fits in with so I mean so I mean it, it it does I mean one doesn't have a huge impact on the other in terms of so's TV what so doing on the TV front won't massively impact on what I'm doing on the live mm. front in terms of sort of scheduling or anything like that mm. but yeah that's what my year my year tends to sort of pretty much shape up like mm. so you're sort of now thinking you're in August now thinking about what's going to happen next spring summer mm -hmm. slightly terrifying also thinking about what next Edinburgh is going to be sort of looks around some venues earlier thinking about next year mm. so that's the, the, what the cycle tends to be from you know I mean you, you know how, how the fringe uh, how the fringe format works it's mm. you know Christmas you start to have those conversations yes. and then you eventually make those decisions by March and, and, mm. and you sort of move on from there yeah my my, my thought would be especially as, as you've got so many fingers and so many pies it would mm. be if you had a spring tour yeah. it would make sense that if you knew there was a TV show in December yeah. to, to try and pitch for that internal or even externally to other channels to try and get more exposure for that yeah act. I mean, I'm, you know I, mean? I, mean I, I'm not, I mean I'm not a development person first and foremost mm. I mean I, I Attach yeah. talent to formats, yes, um, yes. and I'm, yeah, there have been occasions where some I've come up with an idea or something that, that I've been working on in, in the live world does get sort of does get developed, and you, and you do pitch that. So I have some involvement in that sense, mm -hmm. but I don't. I mean, in, in in the sense that you mean in terms of pitching for something at one mm. period, that's not something I get massively involved in. To be mm. honest, I'll be from from a live point of view, I do because I'll be pitching ideas for tours, 
you know whether that's me mm. approaching talent or agents or, or whoever but from the the tv point of view it, it tends to be i i personally tend to be more reactive to oh there's this project yeah will that will that fit with what i'm doing and sometimes that might be development so i might mm-hmm. be involved in that process but that's far more a case of you know someone else saying to me oh we've got this this project in development or a commission mm-hmm. would you like to be involved in it um, and depending on what I've got going on live wise I you know, might, might not be, be able to be involved in yeah. it but it's it's the live side that I suppose is I know what my next year pretty much looks like in terms of live mm-hmm. um, but TV I, mean, I suppose this is the, the interesting thing between the two as well is that live because you are kind of totally it's down to you and the performer you're working with when you do something you can kind of say oh well I know what an, now until next July looks like and I've probably got a little bit of an idea of what ne- next Edinburgh looks like but I haven't got a clue what TV things I might be doing next spring I know what I'm doing this autumn TV wise but I've no, no idea what I'm doing yeah, yeah. In, in the spring and I think that's quite a big distinction between the two worlds in the way that um live you can you can sort of do it yourself really and mm. you you make those decisions whereas on tv whichever bit of television you're working in you're always waiting for someone else to make a exactly. make a decision and so you don't know what what the next year is going to bring tv wise totally it's a lot more control for you yeah yeah, yeah. and you don't <coughs> actually represent acts you just no. you you work with do you work with any independent acts or do you always work with ones with agents How no no i work with whoever the you know whoever's um you know we think we can work with and whoever wants to work with us and whoever we think we can we can make good good shows with uh we don't manage people um you know we work with lots of different agencies but plenty of people who are independent as well mm-hmm. or people who have swapped agents or yeah. people who are looking for agents um i think it, for us it's it's never really about that so much i mean obviously what can happen is you'll have a relationship with an agent through a particular client and then you you know if things work well as you know hopefully they do more often than not then you um, you you might find yourself working far more with mm-hmm. that particular agent, and they might be you might become one of the people that they sort of more organically go to to mm-hmm. say, oh, so and so is looking to do some to do a tour next year, or what do you think about this person doing live if they're not a conventional live performer? Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, it might be from my point of view, I might say, oh, do you know what? It's funny you've got that client. I know they don't really do live, but they how about mm. if we came up with a, a show I think they yeah. they could do you know they could do really well and, and, and make a really good um, you know tour out of it mm. and so there's all sort of different ways that will come about but no there's there's certainly no, never been a I've never had a policy of you must be agented to, yeah. to work with us and I think it's probably yeah it's probably been a, a substantial number of people that haven't thinking about it over the years I think that's just another misconception of like people thinking you need a representation to, to get into yeah I mean it. it's I mean, and, and every you know every producer and, and promoter are different I mean I think certainly having an agent helps if, if you want to sort of get into a development arrangement with a production company mm-hmm. then you know, any production company then and having an agent is probably not going to be a hindrance to yeah. you yeah. but I think when with live I think it's the nature the live community is much smaller and everyone kind of mm-hmm. does know everyone and if you are yeah, if you're going seeing lots of shows like I do, then it sort of follows that you will just find good people, and some of them w- will not be represented. And um, you know, you, you sort of just just judge everything on a, on a case by case basis, really. Yeah, yeah. The, these are the last quick fire questions. Yeah, yeah. So, um, who was the first person to believe in you? Oh, in in terms of the industry, yeah. Well, the person that gave me the people that gave me my break into the industry were uh, Addison and Joe from Off the Curb. Mm. Okay, they they offered you first your first. They job. gave me the first job. Yeah, Amazing. yeah. What's one unpopular opinion you have about the comedy TV industry? 
that it's far too slow <laughs> to get anything going. That's that's my honest my, my main criticism of television yeah. in general yeah. is that it everything takes too long. <laughs> I'd agree with that. What's the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it? <laughs> biggest mistake I've ever made is I'm not gonna say what I'm not gonna say what the mistake is, but it was printed in sixty thousand editions. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> I'll ask you after. Um, <laughs> Who do you think is the most underrated person in the TV industry? You can't say you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As an individual, you mean? Uh, it can be an individual, it can be a group of people, it can be in front of the camera, it can be behind the camera. Someone that you think just doesn't get enough credit for, for the work they do. Um, development people never get enough credit because they, they're usually not involved in the final show. Okay. But they work incredibly hard and it takes, as I said, a very long no time, time to get yeah. there. Um, well, this, I think I know what your answer is going to be for this one, but let's ask it. Um, what do you think is the biggest uh, problem within the industry as a whole, and how would you go about solving it? Biggest problem in the industry as a whole? Do you know what? I, I, that's a really tough one, you know. What did you think my answer was going to be? I, I <laughs> thought it was going to be things take too long to get made, or that, or that it takes too long to take someone from live to TV, or vice versa. I don't know if that's always true, actually. I, I, I think, I, do you know what, actually? The, the biggest problem with it is, is almost the, the inconsistency of it, because I think you can have people that are rushed far too quickly from live to TV and then mm. you were other people that should have been given their break years ago mm. that still haven't that's probably the, the, the biggest the biggest problem with the industry in general mm. is the inconsistency of it mm. in that sense okay and if you could give one bit of advice for uh, a commit the, the biggest question people asked was how do I get on live at the Apollo so right. I'm going <laughs> to so ask uh, you know it as, as if it is I know you've done more than that but yeah, that's yeah, the main yeah. thing that people I, are interested in here so if you could give it one bit of advice to a few thousand comedians kind of shows. Who, who want to get on those kind of shows what would it be other than be really good yeah, <laughs> yeah be, like yeah, how do you get yeah, in front right, of people good jokes yeah. um, do you know what I, I think it's a, it's about having I think it's about having just a really strong hour I think it's about being able to do the it's, it's about taking a, a show to the fringe or wherever that you think is it works is going to translate to TV I think that there's I think you can often do you can often do stuff and go oh this is this is a project I really want to do but you actually have to think about what is a project that's going to to appeal to a broad audience and shows like that not just talk about Life at the Apollo specifically but any big kind of comedy entertainment show on television is going to is going to require something that has a has an appeal that isn't just focused to the audience that you might typically target so do a do a show which has that appeal and that's not to say you have to sort of you know quote unquote sort of sell out or, or change what you're doing or anything like that it's it's just about having something which you think is going to have the the you know the broadest appeal possible and I think that's the 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 best way of getting on those kind of shows although just to say there are lots of other shows that you obviously you can that you can do and different types of shows which probably do um, feed from a a, a more specific sort of viewpoint like we spoke about earlier with in, in terms of the uh, in terms of specific demographics and what have you. That wasn't a very quick fire answer, but that no, is my answer. That's fine. Well, thank you very much for coming. No worries. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Anthony. I loved hearing about how TV is evolving and its impact on his career as well as production house in general. I loved hearing how he scouts both for TV shows and for people for spots and the relationship between the, the different comedy circuits, like from Edinburgh to TV and radio, and you know how, how they don't work on the same time frame and scale on how you make stuff, but you still scout the same way regardless of where you you know go on the live circuit. It was really interesting. I really loved putting this one together. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you got something out of it. If you did, please 
consider becoming a patron from $1. It really helps out the show and it really supports this community to continue. So if you've got a dollar, even if you can only do it for a couple of months, if you've got a dollar, please do consider giving it to me so I can continue to make these shows. Alternatively, you can give it a review if you liked it. That's always helpful as well. Gets us up the charts, gets us exposed to more people, gets us more downloads, helps us get bigger guests on. It's all you scratch my back, I'll give you great content. If you have enjoyed this episode, I would love to recommend the episode with Rob Popper on how to make it in TV. His TV show, Friday Night Dinner, is about to have series five out. So if you want to listen to that back ahead of time, I've just given it another listen and it's still as evergreen as when I made it and it's still got tons of information in about how to get things produced by TV production houses as well as how and when to pitch shows. Or you could do the episode of Ian Coyle, the comedy commissioner at UK TV and Dave if you wanted to find out his perspective on what they're looking for and what they're not looking for. The Ask the Industry podcast is a Fruit That Got in Gravity's Way production for the internet. All elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for subscribing and thank you very much for rating and donating if you do. I'll see you all in about 14 days' time. Bye! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.